Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Series 7 Episode, what is it? Episode 11 of Out With Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that whenever you are listening to this, you are having a good week. I am coming to you from a hotel room in London. I'm doing a show here tonight and then going up north for the weekend, which I'm very much looking forward to. So I'm coming to you sort of without my microphone, so I'm sorry if the the quality isn't quite as good as normal. The interview was done in a studio, so don't worry. It will sound better in a minute, but hopefully this bit sounds okay. I've got a brilliant conversation for you today with the great Johnny Wu, who you might be aware of. Brilliant cabaret performer. Excellent conversation. Loved chatting to him. So I really hope that you enjoy that. Just to let you know, during this conversation, we talk about feelings of suicide and there's quite a bit of chat about alcohol and drug abuse. So I'm flagging this in case that's something that you don't feel you can listen to today. First of all, I need to thank you for all of the gorgeous emails after last week's episode with Sarah Keyworth. Lots of people got in touch about how much you enjoyed that episode. So thank you so much for that. Okay, as always, I've got some gorgeous listener emails. Please, please, I'm always keen for more. The email is hello at com. But I've got two gorgeous ones to share with you today. Hey Susie, your podcast continues to inspire me and I love how I can always find something to relate to in all of your guest stories. It's really helped me to understand my own experience and find clarity and compassion in my journey. I'm a 40-year-old gay man and I came out relatively later in life, just two years ago. I guess the term late suggests there's an on-time way to come out, so not sure it means anything. I suppose we all find our own way and time to process things. Growing up, I was a deeply insecure kid, I don't think I had any real perspective on my sexuality. I just found intimacy in many failed relationships scary as hell. And I always put it down to my shyness or insecurity. It never really occurred to me to question my sexuality. I guess growing up with an insecure sense of self, you never really learn the skill of self-inquiry. Oh, that is such a great way of putting it. That is really interesting. You're right. Or you never really feel you have the confidence to deal with what you might find. After spending my 20s pretty much addicted to work, I found myself burnt out and really depressed in my mid-30s. I realised I needed something to change. I moved halfway across the world to the UK with the view of starting again and finding a more authentic way to relate to the world. I met someone in London who has become a very special friend. His perspective and view on the world really showed me how to find my own authenticity. With this new lens on the world, I began to come to terms with the fact that I wanted a romantic relationship 
what partners I find attractive, and I was really just learning about myself. I eventually allowed myself to process all the thoughts I had growing up. Like the thoughts when a cute boy entered the room and I chose to bury them under blankets of shame and thought, you're not allowed to think that, or your friends are going to crucify you if they find out. All of them got their airtime, and I could really free up some headspace with what I wanted for a change. After chatting to a therapist, I eventually got the courage to tell my family that I was gay, and for the most part, everyone was really supportive. I think I'm still figuring things out, and I still find it difficult to meet people and to date. I probably imagine it, but I do still feel some insecurities about my inexperience as a gay man aged 40. Feels like everyone's got it already figured out, but I guess it takes time to chip away at the inherent insecurity that I have grown up with. Thank you for the space to share this email. I don't often get to share my thoughts and experiences with people who understand, so it means a lot to have someone to share it with. Your podcast really is the favourite part of my week, and I'm grateful that you and it exists. Love you lots. Oh, first of all, I'm not going to share your name because you haven't said whether I could, and I know that coming out is still relatively new for you, so I don't want to do that. But a couple of things, a couple of things to say. First of all, I don't think you need to feel anything about your inexperience and don't feel like everyone's got it figured out. I came out when I was 21. I'm 37 now. I haven't got it figured out, babe. I mean, I know that I'm settled down and stuff, but I still feel like I'm getting things wrong all the time and buggering it up. And I'm so happy that you found yourself and that you're feeling so good and that you've got a great friend to help you through all of this. And I'm so pleased that the podcast means something to you. And yeah, I hope I get to see you one day. That email really meant a lot to me. Okay, let's have one more. Dear Susie, I've listened to Out pretty much from the beginning and found it really helpful in many ways. I've been thinking of writing in but struggled to find the words, so this might get rambly, sorry. You mentioned in the Natasha Devon episode that a lot of emails you receive are from people who have realised they are bi or queer later in life, but are already in long-term relationships with someone of the opposite gender and maybe don't feel queer enough to come out. There is also a lingering sadness about having missed out on some key life experiences or having to shut part of themselves away. This very much echoed my experience. I think I had known for a while that I might not be straight, but for various reasons, I wasn't able to accept it until I was in my 30s and married. My husband is an amazing person. We met when I was 19 and he was 22. I'm now 37. He has been out as bi for our entire relationship. He was the first out bi person I'd met. I went to a Catholic all-girls school during Section 28 era, so the only queer people I knew were in the closet, or were cruelly outed and vilified by both classmates and teachers. I finally came out as pan slash queer at 33. I began tentatively to make friends with other LGBTQ plus people. It felt wonderful to find this community, but also sad that I'd left it so late. One of my friends in this new community introduced me to the idea of polyamory. I've never heard of this, and I never considered it to be a possibility. I talked to my friends about their experiences, did some research online, and began to wonder if it could work for me and my partner. I loved my husband very much and didn't want to end the relationship and definitely couldn't stand the idea of cheating, but felt sadness about this long-hidden part of myself that had to remain locked away. I wondered if polyamory might allow me the space to explore this part of myself without causing irreparable damage to the relationship that I treasured. I was really scared to bring it up and afraid that even talking about the idea might cause a rift, but he was wonderful about it. We discussed the details in a lot of depth together and decided on what boundaries we needed to set in order to make it work and give it a try. 
We've now been polyam for a few years and it has brought so much unexpected joy into our lives. Yes, there are still complications, times of insecurity or jealousy, we're still human after all, and scheduling can be challenging, but it's also brought a sense of balance and freedom that I didn't know that I was missing. I've met some really incredible people, one of whom is now my girlfriend. My husband also has a regular partner and we get on really well. There's even a polyclue WhatsApp group. The four of us came to your show in Oxford last week and had a brilliant time. Oh, I wish you had said hi. I've now found new ways to understand myself and feel less pressure in my relationships. My husband has the freedom to explore their own queerness too and has since come out as non-binary or gender fluid. They use he, they pronouns. It's definitely not a quick fix for a relationship in trouble and it only works if everyone involved is happy with the dynamic and able to set healthy boundaries. Good conversation is absolutely essential. I totally understand that polyamory is not for everyone and this is definitely not meant to undermine the validity of bi slash queer people in monogamous relationships. Your queerness is valid whether you're single or in any kind of relationship. But I wanted to write to you about my own personal experience in case hearing this might open up that possibility to others who could find joy in it. If you read this out, please don't use my name, as I'm not out to everyone. Certain conservative family members might not have been told because they are not accepting of our queerness, so polyamory would definitely be beyond the power. Sending much love to you, Alice and the baby. Please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing that email. I know absolutely nothing about polyamory, and that was a great way of learning something and understanding how it could be perfect for some people. Thank you so much for coming to the show. And I, I really love that you were open enough to share that with me and our little podcast gang. So thank you very much. Right, two gorgeous emails. I was very happy to share both of those. I'm always keen for more emails, so you know you can get in touch with me. It's hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Okay, let's get on with today's conversation with the brilliant Johnny Wu. Listener, I am very excited for today's guest, Johnny Wu, a British comedian, actor and drag queen, an icon in drag and cabaret world. Over the past two decades, Wu has been a pivotal part of defining London and the UK's queer performance scene. Johnny Wu fiercely and creatively paved the way for many queer artists that we love today, not just by being visible and brilliant, but also by curating queer spaces to perform. Johnny, along with John Sizzle and... Colin Rothbart, founded East London's wonderful pub, The Glory, in 2014, a place I have been to more times than I can remember and a place where I was once asked to leave after dancing on the table too many times after I've been told not to. Anyway, less about me, more about Johnny. It's a queer home in Dalston, a place where you immediately feel welcomed and celebrated. It was actually the first bar that I went to when I first moved to East London and I was delighted to find so many people like me. Wu has created events at the Royal Opera House, the National Theatre, London Coliseum, Hackney Empire and many, many more. He was also instrumental in taking drag to the Glastonbury Festival as part of their first ever gay tent, a true one-off, who has done so much for our community and I'm delighted to chat to him today. Hello, Johnny. Hello, what a lovely reminder of my life. You've done a lot. I think so. Looking back, just before we came on air, I said, I always feel like I go back to zero with absolutely everything I do. I always feel like I'm starting from the beginning again. And I do forget that I've actually been doing stuff, well, doing drag since 2000. So that's 22 years of that. And then a life before that. So at the age of 50, yeah, there's a lot of time to have filled. So yeah, I've probably done quite a lot. 
And I said to you when we met this morning, I said, I've seen you so many times on stage, but we've never met. No, we've never met. But it feels like you're, if, if people had to sort of name people that have really been instrumental in creating not just work, but like a place to be, mm-hmm. it feels like people would say your name immediately. Was that, is that something that was really important to you? People say that to me. And right. obviously when you start out, when I start out, that wasn't something that I was looking to do. You know, um, when I think back to the early days of getting into performing, specifically, because obviously things, the journey starts further back than that, but specifically performing, you know, I wanted to perform and I wanted to do creative stuff. And creativity has always been a driving force that kind of goes through everything. And I think the reason why there's so many different things that you keep listing mm. is because I get bored very, very quickly and my kind of like creative juices kind of drift somewhere else and it'll take me. And if I get into something, then I kind of really get into it, you know, and then I might really get into something else. So a lot of it was about me performing, following my journey. But along the way, I was always bringing other people with me. Mm. Even when I kind of kept, kept, we started doing parties in 2003 in East London, there was part of me which was building this community around me and consciously doing so. And then there was another part of me which was being ego. I want to be a star, you know, and I will happily just go off and be a star. But the truth is, what's the, the long story is that it is the community building and the kind of being part of something that's much bigger than me that has resonated and ended up being the most important thing. And as I get older, I look I look around and go like, wow, you don't know that at the time. Which of those? I'm a Libra, you see. I was thinking about that. And it's not so much we're balanced, <laughs> but you have, you have two, I feel like I have two opposites that operate at the same time. Mm. You know, so, um, you know, I'm a kind of egomaniac, but I'm kind of like really retiring and shine and all that kind of stuff. So now, I, yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not for me to say how, what importance or what I've done it's just for me just to keep doing and um finding things that inspire me and i do love i do love doing it with lots of people Mm. the unroyal for example Mm -hmm. has tons of people involved i'm kind of thinking of the one i'm doing kind of like in 2024 and my head's going from all the different people that i can get involved unreal is like a variety show that you do isn't it yes we're kind of really leaping kind of like we're going going straight in here aren't we that's fine it doesn't matter how it goes for those who don't know the unroyal is a big variety show that i started doing with my friend ruben at um the hackney empire and this is kind of like this was sort of the culmination of years of years of years of doing stuff around east london and building up that community and having a network of performers not just in london but also from america as well and this desire a to do something in a theater which is so synonymous with east london Mm -hmm. which is a place which i have made very much my home and bringing my kind of community who are kind of basically performing in little kind of like clubs and bars and dives and toilets and whatever (laughs) and giving them the opportunity to perform in front of um 1300 people on a massive stage with as much production as i can throw at that as possible um bringing in you know kind of like a dance troupe of mates you know <laughs> everyone everyone gets involved and bringing in kind of like you know Christine from New York would come yes. over we kind of had kind of people I met in kind of like on the Australian kind of cabaret circuit um, people I've met in Edinburgh and bringing it all together um, and under the under the under the kind of like the, the guise of being an anti royal variety mm-hmm. because I'm also really old fashioned and so all my references are basically from the 70s and 80s <laughs> 
Um, so that's my that's where my head is. Lots and of Mrs. Slocum's pussy. Yeah, lots of Mrs. Slocum's pussy. Lots of chiffon dresses. Please. You know, smoozing around. You know, I want the band. I want the feathers. I want the magicians. You know, Pete and Bambi were in it. So mm. magicians. I want the variety. Um, yeah, so that was that. So that was that was that's we've had three of those. Um, hopefully, well, I'm not going to even say hopefully the next one will be happening next year with um, Soho Theatre up in Walthamstow. Oh, in amazing! New, in their new venue. In their new venue. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that is a very much community based massive project that I do and I absolutely love. And actually, now where I'm at in my life now. You know, I used to be very much a solo show person. Now I'm really happy just to walk on it, introduce people and let other people kind of do, you know, have the have the spotlight. That's nice. I think that's the thing that I've obviously been, I've been aware of you for a really long time, but I was like reading up on you over the last couple of days. And that's something that came up that people said a lot, that you have sort of created space for them, which is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a really, really beautiful thing to be told. I can't take compliments at all okay great that's good <laughs> can you <laughs> no not really oh my god I can't when, come, so when someone comes up to you after a show and goes oh my god that was really good and gushes what do you do oh do you know what I say something that you, you, you must know my friend Tom Allen mm. Tom always Tom always says someone says something nice Tom always says that is a lovely thing to say thank you that's a lovely thing to say. So I don't actually go, yeah, you're right, it was. I just always said that was a lovely thing to oh say. Oh, my God. Even if I said that, I would sound so insistent. Sometimes people will be really nice to me and I'll kind of respond and they'll be like, they'll be like I'm not taking the piss. I'm going, I know am I. I just, <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't really know what to do with that. I no, don't know I, what to do with that right now. Yeah, I find it... I think it's nice to be able to say thank you. It's really nice. I, I mean, it. I've spoken to my therapist quite a lot. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I've learned. I find saying thank you so hard. Thank you and sorry. Really difficult. Oh, no, sorry I say a lot. I'm really used to saying sorry. I fuck up so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I do on a superficial level, but you have to say it properly. And that comes, that comes from growing up and your, um, well, my, my dad being like, making you say sorry for something and saying it. And you're going, sorry, and then going, say it properly. Sorry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> say, it, say it like you mean it. Yeah, you say know. it. So yeah, those two, those two things. So um, so kind of hearing people say that is is a wonderful thing, and I really have to remind myself that there is a lot of love out there. Oh, for sure, yeah. bags of it. Well, I had a massive birthday, didn't I? Fiftieth yes. birthday I've just had. Yes, seven hundred people came to that. That's pretty cool. And um, you know, that was a it was a it was a beautiful, beautiful, At wonderful. Earth in that was a, that was an Earth, which yeah. I love. That Great venue, is isn't fab, it? Yeah. isn't it? And again, 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 again. That my heart, even though my ego goes, takes me one one. My ego's over here. My heart is very much in the in the centre of a community of people, and that's why I love East London, and that's yes. why I love London mm. because I feel like I am part of the city, and I think yes. I think maybe that's where people kind of become detached you've got to you've got to work at being part of the city you've yeah. got to you've got to you've got to put in a lot mm-hmm. to get stuff out you can't expect it to do the work for you because it won't no because there's so many people you here know, and you've got to you've got to try you've got to you got to put it in really do so yeah my 50th birthday was a beautiful thing and I've had photos done and I've got to get them printed up and I've got to stick them in my flat just so I can just be reminded of what that night was like you know because it was amazing but you've not always lived in London have you you had like a brief stint in New in, York? I thought you were going to say Margate then. <laughs> we can talk about Margate later. No, but I lived New in Margate for two weeks. I lived in Margate for two weeks. A lot of people still come up to me and go like, oh, how's Margate? And I'm like, I lived for two weeks. New York, on the other hand. Why did you move? Did you think that you were going to be one of those Margate artsy no, types? No, no, I broke up with my boyfriend and I had a hissy fit. 
And so Margate for two weeks. Oh, uh, yeah, I thought, fuck London. <laughs> and then two weeks and later. And I was full of, like, I have, I have nothing, I have no money, I, do, I deserve more. It was like that. It was like, looking back, that was where I was at. Right, I was like, sure. You know, London isn't giving me what I want, what I need. Other people are buying flats. I, you know, I was, I was a mess. Yeah. You know, so I kind of like, I kind of went to Margate for all the wrong reasons and lasted two weeks. Because <laughs> my, my life's here. Yeah. But New York, on the other hand, um, that was when I was 27, I went there. And I'd just finished one year at dance school. I'd done drama and dance school and kind of worked in shops and kind of been a Contemporary dance, was it? Contemporary dance, yes. of course, yes, darling. Um, and then I kind of went to New York, just not really knowing why, because I kind of like, um, a really kind boss had bought me a ticket just to go and check it out, which is very, very nice of him. When I worked in the comedy cafe, Noel Faulkner, do you know oh, him? yes, yeah, I do. He bought me a ticket when I was working in the comedy cafe and said, go to, go to New York, you've got to go and check it out, you'll absolutely love it. I went oh my God, like, that's so kind oh of him. Oh my God, it's amazing. He once gave me a great bit of advice what when I was a new stand-up. I've always dressed up to go on stage. Not that it's anything sort of too much, but like I wear a suit or, you know, and have my lips and, you know, I like to look like I've made an effort. There was a guy on stage and no one went, look at that, look at him. And then look at you. You look like you've made the effort. He looks like a c- <laughs> And it really stayed with me in that, like, you've got to make an effort for the audience. You've got to- I always would, but I think it's a really, I think so many comics walk up on stage and it looks like they don't give a shit. Yes. I think I would have done it anyway, but it just, I, it made me laugh so much. Like, look at you, you look nice. Look at him. He looks like a c- <laughs> just... Well, that's a whole conversation in kind of the male privilege on stage. Well, yes, that's comedians. massive. That's, yeah. There's a lot of that as well, mm-hmm. isn't there? Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Please, New York, tell me. Lovely guy, ticket, went there. Then I kind of decided, okay, left dance school. How can I I seem like I'm an immediate success? Because I was terrified of actually trying to be a dancer in London because I'd only really done a year and I... Yeah, you know, I kind of went to the dance late, so I went to New York on a. You can't go on a one-way ticket. You have to have a return, don't you? So I think I must have had a return. Lived off savings for a month. He hooked me up with a friend who lived in a, who had a vintage store in the East Village next to. Do you know PS One Twenty Two in New York? Do you know that? No. It's a performance art venue. Right. Okay. Which, funnily enough, I think was where they might have filmed some of the kids from Fame, or even Fame the movie. Wow. So that was particularly even outside of Rentale. I don't know, but that little bit of information I found very exciting. Yes. Because of I was course. obsessed with the kids from Fame. Um, and so I lived in the back of a vintage shop for about six months, and after about a month, my money ran out, and I landed up getting 
boring job in a perfume store. And then I think it was on my third or fourth day there, I went to this bar called The Boiler Room, and I'd been told about someone called Lavinia Co-op, this woman I knew, was, whose shop it was, knew, um, knew tell me about Lavinia Co-op, you've got to meet Lavinia Co-op, Lavinia Co-op, this... Um, drag queen from London who'd moved over in the 80s, 90s and become a thing. And I was in this kind of like on a Tuesday in this bar called The Boiler Room, cruisy bar, and this kind of like it was like a silver moth came kind of dashing in, like all this <laughs> mylar flying over. And I just knew and I just went over and said you live in your co-op she went yeah so are you <laughs> and um, we had a chat and we became great friends and so Lavinia is was a part of a, um, a drag troupe called the Blue Lips mm -hmm. and they're kind of a, um, a bit older than me and we became great friends and slowly well not slowly quickly because I love going out and was going out all the time discovered the downtown performance art scene mm -hmm. along with another performer called Brandon Olsen who is also very dear to me and those two people in particular got me into this downtown performance art scene. So I went there to be kind of a dancer, and I did do some dancing, but very quickly got muddled up with strippers and or not even alternative drag queens, but just drag that I'd never experienced before. Club kids, how, how go-go dancers. So, like, I'm... What, what drag would you have been aware of? Like Lily Savage? or even, Well, of course Lily Savage, but not even Lily Savage, really. Um, drag for me back then would have been, A, like maybe when I lived in Birmingham, going to kind of the bars there, you'd often have tacky drag, which was just kind of a rough drag, really. And was, a lot of it was pretty misogynistic, you know. Yeah. You know that old school lazy stuff that you don't yeah. get so much now. Yes. Not all drag was like that, but some of it was. Yeah. Or it would have been pub drag, old school pub drag, yes. which really isn't what it's like now. And I, looking back, I do, I do have affection for a lot of that. But at the time, it wasn't for me. I had no intention of doing anything to do with drag when I went to New York. But then discovered this whole new world of downtown queens where I don't even know how to describe it. It was just like, like Brandon was like, let's just get dressed up. Let's throw on some clothes. You know, going out with Lavinia and Brandon for the first time to Jackie 60. It was a closing night of Jackie 60. I'd never been. And for some reason, you know, I'd heard of this person called Justin Bond that Lavinia uh, had spoken yes. about. So kind of like, I, I kind of like borrowed a dress from the vintage store, this kind of like, this kind of like flapper dress. Lavinia gave me some mules I just literally smeared on makeup in the way that you do when you're first ever doing drag you just smear it on put on this short Liza wig the kind of wig I'm still wearing to this very day <laughs> and walked out onto the street and knew immediately that the only way I was going to get through the pain of these shoes was by drinking martinis all through the night which I did and went to this club called Jackie 60 and it was the last one and was exposed to a night and a experience the likes of which i'd never experienced before and which to this day informs so much of what i do and another place which is very informative of the kind of the work i do now was the cock as well that was another place so you had these places the dazzle dancers the slipper room these kind of places i was going to jackie 60 they, they literally had this continuous show going on it was like didn't stop 
you know, there's always someone on stage on the microphone. I think Amanda Paul must have been there. I saw Justin Bond doing Kiki and Herb, mm-hmm. which was kind of like a transformative experience. Richard Move was doing their yeah, Martha Graham kind of thing. So you had these kind of like six dancers on this kind of like stage, no bigger than where we sat now, doing full on Martha Graham routines. Amazing. I can't remember who else was there, but it was continuous. I did this like a really amazing music, like, like sort of like housey rock techno kind of thing. Like, Johnny Dinell was playing this sort of kind of kind of music which I'd also never heard before. This, you know, I'd kind of been running around East London, so I was kind of into the kind of the eclectic sound. But this was this had a rocky kind of edge to it. You know, this was like I was like, okay, wow, this is this is a this is a performance style that I've never seen before that has this kind of drag and this kind of eroticism in it and this mm. sort of punk and this kind of things and was feeding me. And then the other place, as I said, was the cock. So the cock, this was when it was down on 14th Street. I think it's kind of moved. Um, I think Mario Diaz was kind of running the night there. And, okay, so then this was you had the bar, which had the go-go dancers on, which who were practically naked. And you could literally get off. You could literally have sex with them. Don't be on the bar. You could just go to the bar and their cock would just level up in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, and then you I've had, never been anywhere like it. Go on. <laughs> then, you had, then you had the stage where you had Jackie Beat performing, who's this like incredible. Now she's a big kind of like a screenwriter in Los Angeles, but she was like, she's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Again, Justin Vivian Bond would be there. Kind of like crazy. Oh, the, the world famous Bob was another performer. This woman who kind of, you know, was like a bombshell, but super kind of provocative and political. And and then you kind of this, my, this guy called Ricardo used to dance around dressed as a chicken and whatever. So you know, then Scotty Blue Bunny would be there. So you had all these kind of like performers and stuff. Again, to this incredible, I think the the, the guys from who did Male Stripper Man, I think it's Man Parish's name. Man to Man means Man Parish. I think Man Parish was a DJ. So again, the soundtrack was this sort of punky, rocky techno music, which is just brilliant. Everyone fucked up. Yeah. And behind the stage was a back room. I was like, oh my God, this is just like the best place I've ever been in my life. And these two places literally have informed everything that I've done club-wise and to an extent show-wise ever since. Really have. those That New York experience, especially those two places, that one time at Jackie 60, the cock, the downtown scene and expanding into the performance art scene that I was being exposed to. And so how long before you were on stage as Johnny Woo I wasn't Johnny Woo for quite a long time when I was in New York I was Jonathan Worcester yeah I kind of like I performed under that name and me and Brandon we started doing the slipper room I think there was just some night and I think we we just both wanted to do some stuff and be creative because New York was very creative and the other thing about New York which was incredibly life-changing was the the permission to call yourself an artist which um, was something you weren't allowed to do in the UK if you were not a painter or a sculptor, you know, you didn't call yourself an artist. And yeah. I literally just went there. I'd sort of dabbled a little bit. I'd done drama, so, but then I was working in shops and then I'd done a bit of dance. So I was just that, really. And then I went to New York and went to see my friend Brandon in his, in his apartment and he'd done this bit of spoken word, song and dance, dreams going way back when, something like that. It's, it's, his, it's his thing. And then I just kind of did a sort of a bad beatbox next to it. Mm, but that. Mm, but that. And then he was like, yeah, let's do that as a number. So we kind of, we went to something called Dixon Place. That was it. And, you know, we just kind of like put in a suit and did this beatbox. And he did that in this sort of kind of sexy kind of sort of punky drag kind of thing. And 
you know, spoken wordy, beatboxy kind of stuff. And yeah, that was probably within that was probably within about three or four months we kind of started and then yeah I was performing all the time then we would do stuff all the time and we'd make up something we'd make up stuff on the platform and you know we'd go <laughs> out we'd make up something in the nightclubs or you know we literally would be sitting in we had this kind of it was a really exciting moment we'd be in a club and he'd be like oh my god let's let's try that let's try that poem we wrote in the middle of the club so we'd be doing shouting at each other in this nightclub doing this spoken word at each other or we we're on a platform and trains were coming in and go my god let's just do that spoken word now we'd be doing all these trains going past or we'd be in central park and we'd be kind of like working on a dance routine or something and then going and doing it in these funny little spaces so that was how my kind of like performance art thing started and messing around with drag and it was just like it was just like rummaging through thrift stores and putting on staff and i don't know just and just in, indulging the, the kind of like the lusting that i might have had as a kid of wearing beautiful 80s shoulder pad dresses and you know having a beard and you know and he put glitter in my beard and went oh my god you look like a coquette and i was like i have no idea what you're talking about you know and just and then going out and we'd go out on like a tuesday or something and once we went out and he just like we just up in bed sheets we put bed sheets <laughs> on and kind of put spots all over our face all over our body <laughs> weird and went to this kind of um chelsea bar this gay chelsea bar like real kind of west side sort mm -hmm. of like a bit snazzy mm. Just up in sheets, thinking we're being real, and we had, I think, we had enemas slapped to our heads or something, and kind of like, <laughs> and kind of thinking we're really provocative. And the gays are just like, "Oh my god, is there a parade on or something?" I'm like, no, we're trying to be provocative. We're trying to be artists. We're being artists. We're being artists. Can't you see? Talk to me about the little boy that wanted to dress up. Well, what, you grew up in Kent, right? I grew up in Kent. I grew up in North Kent. I grew up in um, All Hallows first, and then Who, and they're both on the Who Peninsula. Or Hallows is the Thames, directly opposite South End. Mm -hmm. Who is the bottom, and that's directly opposite the end of Chatham, really. I think three big power stations there. I grew up. I grew up next to three massive power stations, and a kind of like estuaries and a peninsula that was just covered in cornfields and orchards. Mm. So it's totally bizarre, really. Were you always sort of performing? I think I kind of was. Yeah. I kind of was. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was, I was. I was kind of sulky at home. But actually, when I was at school, I was kind of... I can remember being... I think... I can remember standing on a bench at school and I was about... Oh, no, do you know what I did? Oh, my God. I can't remember. I can't believe I did this. And I don't know why I did it. I think I self-decided when I was eight to stand up on a chair in the middle of class and sing um, Tight Fits Fantasy Island to the class. And it was just... <laughs> just let me do it I didn't get any shit for doing it either that was a weird thing and I don't know why I, how I landed up doing it and yeah and I can remember standing on a bench doing doing Bucks Fizz's kind of um, making your mind up, up routine so I was always doing things like that and doing shows for my nan I can remember doing a show for my nan and we'd rummage through her um through her cupboards and I'd found this foam foam ring that I was wearing as a hat I kind of came out wearing as a hat <laughs> <laughs> it was a hemorrhoid ring. Like, why are you wearing my hemorrhoid ring? I had no idea what it was. <laughs> so yeah, so um, yeah, I wasn't kind of doing draggy stuff though. But yeah, I'd kind of yeah, school obviously doing the school plays, and mm. you know, I made myself the director and made myself the lead. Sure, sure, sure. You know, sure. I did all I did all of that and <laughs> did the local Amdram and went to and did drama at university. So did yeah. you? 
Were you out as a young person? Because I'm trying to think of what sort of time this would have been. Were you this a teenager is, in the 80s? Yes, I was a teenager in the 80s. I'm, I was born in 1972. Yes. So, oh, I did um, down 71. That was my guess, damn it. 72. So I was definitely gay. And obviously people probably all knew it. So I, I got away with much less hassle than I could have. Mm. I got off really lightly. I don't know why I got off really lightly. I think I might have got off really lightly, but in my teens, because I made friends with all the really cool girls. Right, okay. So the boys couldn't get to me, you know, because they had to go through them, you know. Right. And maybe going through the theatrical route as well, that also gave me a, you got a bit of a pass. Yes. Yeah, because considering I grew up in a particularly white working class sort of area, which was not diverse, and it was a proper comprehensive system, but maybe it's because it was just a little small villages and I don't know. I, I, seem, I seem to get by okay. Obviously, a little bit, you know, I think someone just pushed me to the floor once or something. And I think, um, I think I can remember standing outside the swimming pool and, you know, them talking about whether I was being gay or something and I went really red or something and someone made a comment. I think I just knew really early on to... you temper your behaviour. I knew that there were certain things and certain ways of behaving that I would not do if I wanted to avoid shit. Right. You know. Yeah. So I think that's, I, yeah, I think that's how I kind of got through. Because I knew right off the bat, you know, really, really early on. Um, but yeah, I think that's how I got through. And I generally had like a really fun childhood. As I say, running around cornfields and getting chased by farmers mm. and for nicking apples and kind of falling through kind of, you know, ponds covered in ice and getting stuck in the mud and kind of like it's, it's fun kid stuff and you know hanging outside the you know mcdonald's in chatham high street and getting drunk on martini before going to the rochester bar on rochester high street you know it's all kind of it was all standard jolly old fun really yeah and finding the local gay bar which is still there which was the ship in well it's great that it's still there yeah it's still there martha's still, in portsmouth is long gone oh, really? it's still yeah it's still there and it was the only place i can remember my dad just saying to me once don't you go in there he knew <laughs> he knew so actually yeah my childhood was pretty was actually pretty all right and in terms of coming out i think it was i think it was sort of like a it was kind of more kind of like the sort of kind of like the steam kind of like you know when you kind of put, put the heating on the windows in a car which are frosted over mm-hmm. and they just kind of like clear mm-hmm. it was a sort of a bit like that I think I just kind of sort of I didn't really tell anyone the only the, the only people the first people I actually told I just had sex with this guy from the local Amdram company called Peter if you're listening <laughs> who was 28 and I was 16, so it was very illegal at the time. Mm. And anyway, and I was in a rehearsal for South Pacific, and I just had to tell someone. So I literally just tell this girl in the chorus, who wasn't a particularly close friend of mine. I just said, I've got to tell you. She says, well, I I had had sex with someone. He goes, who was it? I goes, it was a man. And she was kind of like, that was was actually my coming out. And then I sort of... And what was her response? Like, oh "Oh my God, really? And I called these two random girls in the chorus. Sam and Katie. They were the first two people, yeah. (laughs) But my best friend, Angela, she kind of had to beat it out of me. And then, yeah, and then I went to university and then you're just gay. Was that... I was sort of working out when that must have been timing-wise. Did that mean you were at university sort of during the AIDS crisis? I was at university from 1990 to 1994. So I was very aware, obviously, of the AIDS crisis and have lived in kind of like 
terror from it and have been traumatized like all mm-hmm. especially gay men who yeah. lived through that you know like my generation missed the generation where they experienced all the deaths we literally were the next generation mm. so we were lucky enough to be coming of age really when they discovered combination therapy so mm. kind of like come the mid 90s i think it is combination therapy was coming in and starting to save a lot of lives so my generation who were becoming sexually active around then you know if they were contracting it were lucky enough to be on this new medication so we we're kind of like in this weird weird sort of middle ground but having grown up with the um tombs on the falling and all of that and all the stigma that is still around and stayed for a long time yeah it really it really really affected me it really affected me actually yeah and i think it affected we there's a lot of gay men i think that our generation do suffer from a certain amount of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder around that yeah yeah, whether whether people have um, are living with HIV or not, the yeah. shame that we had to burden, that we still burden, even though you might be told that it's not, it's fine, it's not, it's it's we're we're working through that. So yeah, so that was that was definitely there. It was a scary time. It was a scary time, but also it was part of that lie that as gay men we might have, I might have told myself that you will die, you will die, you won't have a partner. All those kind of narratives. How long would you have been telling yourself that for? Years, decades. That's why your fiftieth had to be so important. (laughs) Had to be such a big party. Really, really. I've only. I think I've only just shared a lot of this in the past, like five years. Oh, absolutely. I can remember in my thirties. I can remember. I can remember saying to myself, "I was going to kill myself if I didn't have a boyfriend by the age of 40. I say that a lot to myself. Yeah. yeah 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 i've 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 had very dark thoughts um because i mean i'm in sobriety now i don't yes. know if you know that yes so obviously did, kind yeah. of i have had the whole kind of sort of all that kind of like drug and drink thing kind of going on which mm. was wonderful and fantastic and also horrendous at the same time yes of course yeah. so you had to s- stop drink was it in 2014 you stopped? i stopped in 2014 but i almost died in 2006 wow that's a long time to yes i had multiple organ failure in 2006 because of just fucking my body up. What more can I say? We don't need to go into all the details. In intensive care for two weeks, in hospital for three weeks more, and there was there was like, do you want you know, do you want help with your drink and drug taking? <laughs> help, as in help not to drink, take yeah. drug, not help to drink and take drug. I was like, no, I'm fine. And so, kind of when I when I left the hospital, I just wanted to get back on it again, you know, drinking. So I hit the bottle after six months recovery of uh, um, convalescence like i was straight back on it i think the first thing i did was go to paris and get smashed on champagne and then um the drugs kind of came back again um later you know the drug story isn't all bad you know mm. it's the 90s i start I went clubbing in birmingham yeah oh my god i have brilliant memories yeah fantastic memories yeah the golden age ecstasy it was fantastic yeah. i loved it like still me and my friends still sit and talk about the early days of taking ecstasy the same way that we used to after doing pills going to a club. After going to a club in the night, you'd go home and for hours you'd sit there and talk about what the night was like. And it would literally just be like, oh, do you remember when they played that song and you came up on that pill? That was kind of all that you said for about two hours, but you would just keep repeating it. <laughs> oh, and then do you remember when we did that? And it, what you didn't do anything, we sat on the stairs and, oh, do you remember that song when we came up on that pill? Oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> we did that for years. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, so there was. I had tons and tons and tons and tons of fun. I had tons and tons and tons and tons of fun. As I say, it's that kind of like tons and tons of tons and tons of fun. After a while, obviously the fun really got me into kind of like really physical trouble, but also kind of mental trouble. The other side of what's going on at the same time, tons of fun, same time. The devil voice has started. It's the mm. devils have started. You know the the come downs, the mm-hmm. self doubt, the lies. Tell yourself they got four days of the week, three days of kind of thingy, four days of just like. You performing all the time doing all these performances and parties and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's kind of it was. It must have been like exhausting as well, though. Yeah, I was young and kind <laughs> of young. My body gave up. <laughs> Um, oh yeah it's difficult it's so weird weird to look at all that it's all such craziness I'm so much calmer now and I never you know I stopped performing with booze anyway maybe in about 2012 I think so about 10 years ago I really did I took booze out of the equation right. so before I'd even stopped maybe even a bit before I kind of learnt that booze and performing didn't go hand in hand yeah because especially with the parties you know because a lot of my stuff I did start off, off really in clubs and parties and I look back and I say to myself rather, you know, pejoratively, I was paid to turn up and get drunk, which I wasn't. I was paid to turn up and create. do something and create and do something at this party. But to be able to do that, you know, to be able to kind of turn up at a party, be outrageous, be outre, extreme, mm. have the confidence to talk to kind of like tons of people who I don't know, blah, 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 free drink, free drink, free drink, free drink, free drink, free drink, after party, after party, after party, after party, after party, after another after party, another after party, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. There was other people who were doing it. It wasn't just me. Of course. Yeah, so, but yeah, in terms of performing, performing, cabaret, yeah, gay bingo, booze played a big part in a lot of that. Again, by the time we got to do a gay bingo at Soho Theatre, yeah, sure, I, I would have come, we, we yeah. Speaking where you came, yeah, I'd, the booze was, I'd really cut the booze down and learning that I perform better without it. Yeah, and so you've been sober for eight years, nine, coming up for nine years this year? That would be nice, wouldn't it? No, I was sober for about three years, and I started drinking again, and then I stopped again um, two years ago. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't kind of like when the, when the, when I kind of like fell off the wagon. It wasn't like the wheels didn't fall off. I kind of just started again, and then learned that it doesn't work. Mm. It doesn't work. It mm. got in the way. It gets in the way. When I stopped drinking, I became um, much more prolific in the work that I was doing, and much more deep in the kind of research that I was doing the kind of plays and work that I was doing kind of definitely got better like I've been doing a lot of solo shows I felt like I winged a lot of stuff I don't know if you kind of you know you just wing it you kind of Mm. you kind of ride on I don't know a natural talent really you just get by on the natural talent which is a which is a wonderful thing to have been able to recognise as having but not necessarily the most grateful thing to not being able to give it the time and training that it needs Mm. whereas now I'm kind of a bit more like yeah if you want to be excellent you really have to you have to kind of dig deep, especially yeah. as you get older. When you came back from New York and mm-hmm. you sort of created that party scene that was somewhere between drag and a bit burlesque maybe? It was kind of like something that I'd never seen before or that I'd experienced. I kind of like took all my experiences and what I'd seen in New York, went to, met up with a friend, Richard Ed, who had the Georgian Dragon and was like, let's do a Sunday night. I would decorate the pub. <laughs> I'd dress up in all sorts of outfits and do all these kind of spoken wordy things and 
installations and so they were kind of performance arty sort of it wasn't nobody i people didn't really call it drag everyone everyone really wanted me to be a performance artist nobody wanted to call me drag i would say i was drag because i couldn't think of any other word for it right and it you know it's like what what i was doing and what people started doing then it's so far removed of where drag is now and even so far removed from where drag had come from so like this you know it was it was there was definitely a bit more it was like rough and ready sort of club kid kind mm. of stuff that's kind of what it was with you know we did we called ourselves something else we called ourselves the t-word which obviously yes. we don't use now yes yes and the reason why we use that word because we didn't we didn't identify as drag queens we yeah. didn't identify as drag queens. We, I, I felt like I had much more of a sensibility of being a transvestite. Yes. So that's why we kind of used that word at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what that's that was the tribe, I guess. That. And became. was that all when when you came back from New York? It's because were you trying to sort of create something of what you had there in I East London? New, I came back from New York because I didn't want to weather another winter in New York which is just horrendous yeah. oh my god I couldn't believe it and I didn't want to become American there were two things there were, there were two main reasons if I want to stay here I'm going to have to become American and I don't know if I want to kind of jump through those hoops mm. to kind of become American really um, and so yeah I just as I say I just kind of I'd gone to New York I'd gone to New York to do one thing I discovered something there I came back and I kind of just wanted to I don't know. I went back to East London, went into Shoreditch, where mm. I'd been running around before, which I'd had a brilliant time. So I had my mem- memories of all the parties that we used to do at the Bricklayer's Arms. Oh, I used to go to the Bricklayer's Arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so much fun. So it's that, that's, that's where it started before then. <laughs> yeah. That was in 95, going to the Bricklayer's Arms. I wasn't there quite yet. Yeah, that was kind of... <laughs> and, that you know, again, that was like a, a bunch of people just doing crazy parties in a pub. So the George, George and Dragon was, again, a bunch of people doing crazy parties in a pub. And I kind of felt like I'm going to be the centre of this. And if I'm wild and crazy and do this crazy stuff, everyone else will be wild and crazy. And so that was sort of... were they? Yeah, they were. They did become. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah, that was kind of... Someone someone said, to the biggest compliments I've ever been given, was one person says, um, I said, what is the zeitgeist? And they said, it's kind of been part of the moment of being now. Someone said, you're very zeitgeist. And I was like, oh my God. That was literally the biggest compliment yeah. you could have paid me. Actually, for quite a long time, to feel to feel like I'm connected in, in the moment and at in the, in now mm. is is actually kind of where I have wanted to be for a long time. Above everything, to be present, to be kind of like tangibly alive, and that kind of idea of being in co- connected with whatever's happening right right now. I've always wanted that. That's why I like clubs and ecstasy and raves and mm. those kind of things. It felt like I was doing what you're supposed to be doing at that time and a lot of the time I've always felt like I, I just want to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now because that is what it is to feel like you're really alive do you get that on stage do you have that sort of moment of you know when you're having a really good one oh, you and you're I, really good on your feet and you might talk to the crowd and you're in it you're, yeah, in, you're in the in moment it, in it yeah this is like performing now like doing the show like doing a run of a show which is very rehearsed which is what you're doing at the moment which I'm doing right now incredibly almost the word right is is a certain experience and it's a very enjoyable experience and I love it but it's, it's a certain experience most of the stuff that I used to do which is why I used to hate doing having to do runs of solo shows because I hated having to repeat stuff and which is why I did so much stuff which was improvised mm. which I would 
it actually gave me anxiety. That's why I had to stop doing Gay Bingo. One of the reasons, because the amount of anxiety I'd get before doing it was so like by about two weeks, the, the anxiety as long would as start. That. Mm, it would start. It would actually start because it would be a two-hour improvised show, you know. And before I used to relish it, and there was kind of like, as you say, when it worked, it was amazing. Yeah. When it wasn't working. It was like two hours. I was just That's like, a slug. Oh my god! This is, I can't believe this. We're just being crap. So yeah. So yeah. When it's the payoff now is not worth it. It's not yeah. worth that anxiety at the time. That's why I loved. I love all my shows. Kind of not all my shows, but a lot of my shows are one-offs. They don't happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, my birthday will never happen again. Yeah. I love a happening. I really do. I love. Is that what that, you're always looking for? The that next is, that happening is actual. I think that is largely what I'm always looking for. I like one-off things. If you were there, you were there and experienced it. And then I like the I like the ephemeral nature of kind of performance. Yes, I really do. I really, really do. I love that. I love. I love that so much. Even when you do like a run of them, like a, you run at the Soho or run at the Edinburgh Festival, there'll be a handful that are like special. Yeah, and you can't. Like, you know it and the audience know it. Depends how much notice the text taking. Yeah. But, like, there's just a je ne sais quoi. There's like, a free it's song something. in the air or something. Or, yeah, the audience might be in a slightly different mood. And so something happens. Yeah. And it changes the gear of the show. Yeah. Like, I remember having, I've done so many shows in Edinburgh in those, like, weird little boxes that they put out that are sort of like storage containers. And I started a show in it. Just didn't. I don't want them. They're not gelling with me. And then someone came in late and I was quite good. And they changed, they're, they're, it changed it. Then it yeah. was a great show. Yeah. But I think had they not been late, I might have had a, not bad one, but just a slightly sticky one. one. Yeah. And it's so funny how just a thing. Yeah. But that's the, that's the joy of live, isn't it? That's why, yeah. you know, it's great watching stuff on telly and it's great that shows exist that can show off performance different styles of performance but there's nothing like being in that room yeah i've i've almost given up so many times especially of, really? obviously especially especially during lockdown i think we all almost gave up yeah we almost all thought that a that was the end of it yes so we almost just we gave up thinking of all the other things we could do and yeah there's been lots of times i thought do i even want to do this now and i actually think now i'm 50 i'm like if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i have to do it on my ter- on my own terms mm-hmm. now I've got. I've been poor. As I say, the ego, the ego side of me, has allowed myself to be, be tugged here and there, either by flattery, either by false promise. A lot mm-hmm. of the time, you must know about the false promise. Oh yeah. If you dis- do this, you will get this attention, or this is possible. But you're kind of really pandering to someone else's kind of needs. Yeah. And kind of wants. Yeah. We're looking for something that's kind of like this. Could you, yeah. If you could do that, we be might a bit be more that. If you do that, uh, then how about if you do that? We um, love you, but actually, we've gone in a different direction after you spent all that time and effort. Yes, doing the thing. You know, so now I'm kind of like, I've got. If I'm going to do it, if I'm going to perform, and I do, as I said earlier, kind of like creating is kind of really my driving force. You know, just before I turned fifty, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm just going to settle down a bit and kind of just earn enough money now so I can retire. And the reality is, of course, I've got another decade or so before <laughs> that even starts to happen. So, and what is what do I enjoy doing most? It's creating, and it's still it's still performing. But I have to I have to want to do it on my terms. I I do suffer from nerves really badly, really badly. And has that been something that's new since you've become sober? Oh uh, no, I think it's just I think might be getting older. I don't trust myself all the time with remembering stuff. To be honest. Oh with you. really? <clears throat> yeah, I do get I do get anxiety, and sometimes I'm like, is it really worth it? 
Is, is, are these nerves worth it? Mm. As I say, doing the doing the music halls, what I'm doing now, I feel very comfortable. And it's it's enjoyment. And there's two um, of you. You've got a friend on stage. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Solo shows, like a solo show. I don't want to carry that solo show anymore. I do a songbook show with a yes. friend, uh, two friends. Um, again, it's because like I've got these two people here, and the, you know, all I have to deliver is introduce the songs and sing them. Mm. That's all I have to do. So obviously, I don't. I land up chatting for like fifteen, twenty minutes, <laughs> or whatever, you know. And, oh, then suddenly my clothes are falling off, and I'm kind of rolling around and doing all this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't gone out there kind of saying to people, this is what you're going to get. What you're going to get is me introducing songs and singing them. So and if, if they end if, up seeing... If you get more than that, lucky old you. If they end up seeing your bum, yeah. that's just luck. Or doing kind of big solo, uh, big group shows, as I said. Yeah. Or now, obviously, writing, you know, a play. Yes. But I'm not even going to be in. Giving it to someone else. Will you direct, do you think? No, I just want to write it. Um, I am writing it. Exciting. About the 60s. About a gay pub. About was it a secret? <laughs> it must have been a secret gay pub because it must it's have been not, illegal. It's not a secret gay pub. It was called Kent Arms. It but did everyone know it was gay? I think so. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I guess it's kind of weird. It's kind of like it was. A, it was a project that came about because I wanted to do a play based on Last Exit of Brooklyn. That's how it started, and that has been gestating for the best part of twenty years. Right. And then I thought, how am I going to do it? How am I going to get the rights? How can I do a play about Last Six of Brooklyn? If I'm going to be in it, am I going to be able to do all the Brooklyn accents? No, I'm not. Let me set it in London. Blah, 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 blah. Where am I going to set it? I set it in the docks because the docks is a bit like the place it's set in the book. So that's how I get, got to the docks by chance. Who remembers the 60s? A friend of Lavinia called Stuart Feather. Oh, we used to go to this pub called the Kent Arms. And I walked in there and it was full of all these gay mods hmm. from all around the country dancing to Motown. I was like, oh. if that's not a starting point. What I is? love it. And then various bits of research. So kind of, um, so during lockdown, I started, it was like, okay, wow. I've got time. I've got time to do mm-hmm. this project that I didn't really know. Let's start researching the gays in the 60s and the docks. And that kind and that kind of thing. So my head really has gone into that. So that's my big, that's one of my big projects for next year. It should be with the Royal Docks and Theatre of Stratford East, hopefully going into production, but not until the end of next year. Which I kind of understand because these things do take a yeah, long time. Yeah, they do take time. But um, yeah, real. And it's nice to be creating something. And it's really nice to be creating something and thinking, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not writing it for myself. I don't. It's not my voice. I can really just write it's in other voices and it's, it's it's actually been the hardest thing i've ever done oh my god writing is so difficult that kind of writing mm-hmm. is so difficult yeah it really is oh my god the rewrite oh when i was doing it i said to myself it was literally like crawling through brambles <laughs> i didn't kind of like in my head it was like crawling through brambles and speedos <laughs> i've actually, actually given myself a little bit of kind of a little bit of protection in my kind of weird kind of like stress fantasy <sighs> but that is kind of how it was so powerful oh my god I'm never going to do this and there's still there's still work to be done on it um, and but, how can people keep um, across what you're doing people that you're on the socials they can find yeah. other things okay Johnny's shaking to, his you head just, you just have to just have to be there I hate, I, be hate there. I hate social media oh I hate social media it's terrible but I so use I'm, it I'm a bit on because... and off there. I'm a bit on and off the Instagram yeah yeah I'll go on it periodically I'm I will occasion I, I will post things maybe once a week on Instagram and I'm 
I had a pile on on Twitter from some very shouty people and my wife took my phone off of me deleted the Twitter app and was like you don't need it you don't need it yeah I deleted Twitter I came off Instagram during most of lockdown I'm back on it again at the moment um, to plug stuff because I need to kind of promote stuff because yeah. it's part of the job isn't yeah, it yeah it really is and I have to I have to pre I came off it recently I'll probably go off I'll probably take myself off it when I go to Australia um, because I don't like the fact that then I start posting and searching for the likes yes and then also comparing and despairing I do that a lot oh yeah compares the what is it comparison is the thief of joy oh comparison is the thief of joy oh really well it is isn't it it really is it really is so they're the reasons why so um Unroyal Walthamstow musicals at the moment Soho Theatre play next year they're the main things and then um you know a pop up keep your eye songbook songbook singing songs at Bistro Tech I do stuff you know that's that's what I'm doing. And the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show, the final question of the show, because I know we have lots of people that are listening that might be, uh, be maybe going through similar phases to you that you have been through or things that you've spoken about during our conversation. If you could, I'm trying to think of which version of you, maybe the version of you that sort of went to New York to find something. Mm. If you could reach out to someone that's maybe having an experience like that in their lives at the moment where they're searching for their tribe or their people, um, if you could reach out to them and give them a bit of advice, what would you say? What would I say? I did that when I was 27. If mm-hmm. you're 20, 27 is like an age. Yeah. It's a pivotal point, I think. Mm-hmm. Looking back on my life, it's a really exciting time. If you're thinking about leaving anywhere and going somewhere else, just go because... Mm-hmm. It's all there when you come back. Just go. Take a risk. Get out. Absolutely. You know. At any age, it gets it gets it gets, it gets trickier as you get older. But if you've got that impulse to go and find something else, take the risk. Because um, you meet people. It it's, it it puts it puts a fire underneath you. Um, be careful when you get there. You know. Look after yourself. You know, I did and didn't, but I survived. Mm. You know, it's difficult. And if you like the booze and you like the drugs and all that kind of stuff, if you can, if you need to nip that in the bud, nip it in the bud. Because it gets in the way. can get in the way. People, are, Younger people are nipping it in the bud a lot earlier yeah, nowadays, I, think I feel so. like. There's much more talk around it, which I think is necessary about yes. recovery and sobriety and... You know, if you want to achieve excellence, booze and drugs isn't isn't the route. It's, there's no excellence is not there. Yeah, it will eventually kind of. And get the, in the anxiety way. will be ten times worse the next and day. The, yeah. So yeah, but oh, I don't know. Words of wisdom, I don't know. <laughs> As I say, if you th- if you if you're thinking about it, do it. You know, have courage, and take a risk. As I say, you can always come back, and nothing has changed. Nothing changes, really. <laughs> I went to New York for three years, came back, I thought, oh, nothing's changed. (laughs) Take courage, the perfect place to end. Johnny, thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. That was Johnny Wu. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Whatever you do this week, I hope you have a good one. And I'll speak to you next time. Take care. Bye. (laughs) 